Good morning, church. <laughs> Glad that you're here. Um, it always amazes me, though, when I sit down, because um, usually I'm in the front row, and, and when I sit down, um, people are still trickling in a little bit. And then when I get up here, it's like, oh, wow, there's a lot of people here. That's really cool. I wasn't really sure because of sickness, right? I know a lot of people who are out sick. Um, weather. Miss uh, um, Shana, our children's um, next generation pastor, is stuck in Kansas City because of the snow. Apparently, she's on her way back now. And uh, so you never really know what you're, what's going to happen on Sunday mornings, especially here at Thrive Church. So I am so glad that you are here and that you're healthy enough to be here. If you're not healthy, next time stay home, okay? I just, you know, don't share that love. We don't, we don't, we don't want that, thank you. But if you're here, uh, there are two people I want to make sure that I, I shout out to. One, I'm so glad to see Stock, uh, Scott Stockton here and Peggy Marsh is here. And oh my goodness. And... Thrilled. Thank you, Jesus, that they're here. So that's good. All right. Um, we're doing this series called Reveal. <clears throat> and um, what we're trying to explore is how God reveals himself to us. And I'm going to touch on this, you know, briefly, you know, week after week. But just this fundamental assertion or belief that I think uh, I have and I think that most... You know, um, uh, let's say traditionally speaking Christians would believe is that God exists and he reveals himself to human beings. And primarily that happens through his word. And I, I, I believe that. But let's be honest, sometimes human beings need a little help, don't we? <laughs> and so God will often enter the scene in uh, a, a very interesting way in order to capture our attention. And we find this throughout the scripture. And um, what we're trying to do here is to really explore this, this idea of how else does God reveal himself to us? How else does he do that? And um, as I've been thinking through this, last week was a perfect opportunity to start this because it was the season that we call uh, Epiphany. And uh, that's when God revealed himself to um, the wise men through the star. And so we, we call this idea epiphany. And in the Western church, that means the Roman Catholic side of the church, um, the wise men showing up is epiphany. But in the Eastern Orthodox church, it's a little bit different. Epiphany is related to the baptism of Jesus. And, and so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk a little bit about that side of this idea of epiphany. Now remember, epiphany means a revelation or realization. And, and so this makes perfect sense, is that God reveals himself to non-Jewish people in the form of the star, and they show up. Remember, we talked about this last week, the wise men. Now we're going to turn our attention towards the other part of this and talk about the baptism of Jesus, because something really extraordinary happens in that, in that moment. And this is how God reveals himself another way. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn with me to Mark chapter 1, the Gospel of Mark. So in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, it's the second book. It's one of the four biographies of Jesus. I'm going to talk a little bit about Mark. I'm going to talk a little bit about the book itself. But Mark chapter 1, verses um, 9 through 11 is where we're going to begin. <clears throat> Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So at that time... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, that's in the north, and was baptized by John in the Jordan, which is in the east. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn 
torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, How many of you have actually read this before? Now, there's some interesting things about this verse. There's some interesting things about how this verse is used elsewhere. So we find this same story in two other of the biographies of Jesus, one written by Matthew and the other one written by Luke. It's the same story, almost verbatim, with some minor modifications in each. Here's the interesting part to this. Mark is the first of the Gospels written, probably around 60 A.D., so, if you like math and you like timelines, we know that Jesus died roughly 30, 33 A.D.-ish, okay? And about 30 years later, Mark's gospel begins to be written down. And <clears throat> both Matthew and Luke borrow very liberally from Mark. So you can find some pieces of Mark in those other two gospels. This is one of them. So you can actually look this up if you want to, Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3. You can find the baptisms of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus in both those, uh, both those Gospels, and you will find that it's very similar. And if you look at the Greek language that it was written in, it's almost verbatim. Okay? So it's very clear that it was an ancient version of copy and paste. Okay? Like I said, with some minor, minor variations. And... Um, Usually, Mark's gospel is associated with Peter. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, John Mark, the, the man who actually penned it, was a close associate of Peter. They were friends. And you can, you can actually find that in the book of Acts. Okay? So Mark is writing down what we believe is Peter's account because, for two reasons, the language is pretty rough. It's very quick. It's very almost like Peter's just trying to get this out and John's writing as fast as he can. Kind of an idea. Um, we also th seem to think that this would be Peter's account of Jesus' life because there are certain details that Peter mentions that we don't find anywhere else that only an eyewitness would really understand, would really um, remember enough to be able to write down. Does that make sense? Because how many times have, have you said, let's get it straight from the horse's mouth, right? Yes, because there's details there that, that don't... You ever play the game telephone? You start at one end and you work your way around and by this time, this is like absolutely nothing to what this person heard in the beginning. That's the idea. It's that original kind of source and there's some details there that you don't necessarily find in some of the other Gospels. And so Mark is... Um, and, and I've said this before, it's my favorite of the Gospel, not just because it's the shortest, but because there's a certain amount of energy, there's a certain amount of detail to it, and I think it's a great place to start because then you can start piecing some other things together. But here's the reason why I'm mentioning this. And this is what I find just incredibly important. If we find this in the book of Mark, and we find it in Matthew, and we find it in Luke, that's a good indication that whatever the content is, it's really important to the early church. Does this make sense? This is part of the, the stories that shape the faith of that early church because it starts in Mark and we begin to see it at other, in other places and at other times written by different authors to different audiences. 
And they thought it was important enough to borrow from Mark to make sure that it gets passed on to this, diff this, uh, this different audience. Does this make sense? So if we find these parallels in all three Gospels, that's a pretty good indication that maybe we ought to pay attention to it. There's something here that is very shaping it's, that's, uh, that's important to that early church. And if it's important to the early church, there's a good chance it might be important to us. And just, you know, kind of a, kind of a thought there. So it underscores that, that those things are widely circ circulated in the early church and it shaped that faith community. And what we find here is a very short story, don't we? I mean, look, it's basically two verses, oh, well, nine, ten, eleven, three verses, right? There's three verses that's being, that are, sums up this entire event. And it's pretty dramatic. So we have this this story, and, and I want you to notice a couple of features here. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Very simple, very straight. Now, <laughs> a couple of things. There's no indication as to why Jesus was baptized by John, and there's no indication that his disciples were baptized. I'm just saying. Okay? There's nothing here that says it. The text is what we call silent on this. In fact, out of all of the gospel accounts, the only one that even indicates that the disciples, that some of the disciples may have been baptized by John too, is the Gospel of John, which is a much later book and a much more detailed account of how all of this happens. And so what I'm wondering here, just kind of personally, is that I'm guessing that the wise in whoever else is is not important to Peter. And therefore, it was not necessarily important to the rest of the church. Now, those of us who live in the 21st century and we like scientific details and we like Instagram and we like Facebooks and selfies and we want to know all of those sorts of things, it kind of bothers us. Because we don't know if Jesus did it by himself. We don't know why Jesus did it because he didn't post it online somewhere, right? But he didn't. The text is silent here. So I want you to notice that. Here's the second thing. It says that just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. He saw. Presumably, that pronoun refers back to Jesus. Jesus saw that, right? Okay. And he heard... Something. A voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. I'm going to tell you, I am troubled by this. Because all indication is this is something that Jesus heard. We presume that everybody in the area heard it, but the text doesn't say that. And we have to be very, very careful about these things. Jesus saw heaven ripped open. The devil. So how did Peter and John Mark know it? In order to write it down. Did Jesus tell them? Again, the, the text is silent on this, and yet this is a very shaping story. Now, we presume that when Jesus came up out of the water, everybody in the area saw the heavens rip open and the dove descend in the voice, but that's not what the text says. And so we have to be careful about these things as it, as it shapes that early story. And 
Um, this kind of shows the rough nature of the Greek that's, that's being used here. And it's obviously not important to Peter. Peter accepted whatever he heard, presumably by faith, and Jesus is talking about it apparently. Otherwise, how does it get transmitted? I don't know. But this is the story as it is. And there, it's, it's, it's not rife with details, which just aggravates the bejeebers out of me. I don't know what a bejeeber is, but I'm aggravated by it. So whoever saw and heard the story, um, whatever, you know, whatever the source of that was, this is the thing that's widely circulated throughout the ancient church. And I think what's important here is for us to, to understand that God reveals himself dramatically, usually through Jesus. Remember, God can reveal himself through natural phenomenon. And we talked about this last week, like the star. But also, God can do this dramatically, like heavens being torn open and doves descending and voices. And, and he usually does it through Jesus. And I think this is a great story. And, and I think this is important because obviously this is about God revealing himself to the world through Jesus in some, in some way. And obviously, the, the early or the um, the Eastern Orthodox Church has picked up on this, and they, they they bring this out every year about this time, and and it's a it's a big deal. And yet, I think it's just the beginning of a broader story. I think there's more to it. If you just end at verse eleven, I think you're missing a lot of it. How many of you remember Paul Harvey? The rest of the story, right? There's more to this, and I think we need to dig a little bit, little bit deeper. <clears throat> and so I want you to notice the course of events here. So if we continue to read um, into verse 12, it says, At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tested by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Do you remember this part of the story? In Mark's account, and in some of the others, but in Mark's account, one immediately follows the other. He has this dramatic experience of being baptized, and he's immediately in the wilderness. But there's some details here. There's some things that we need to understand about what's happening in this part of the story. First of all, um, at once, or some translations, it's immediately. Mark is big on immediately. In fact, I think Jesus is exhausted most of the time because he's immediately getting up and he's going here and he's going there and there's just a lot of energy that's being expended in Mark's gospel. But it says immediately. So he just goes through this experience immediately. The Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. Now, time out. I want to talk about the word sent. I don't understand why it was translated this way within the NIV, but this word sent doesn't do it justice. The better translation, at least in my mind, is the Spirit drove Jesus. In some translations, compelled or impelled Jesus into the wilderness. That sounds a little different than just sent, doesn't it? Sent seems a little more passive, and this is not passive. Not at all. Not in this context. This is not passive. It drove him ill in the wilderness. And sometimes I, I get this, this sense that when we think about the temptation of Jesus, we sit there and we go, oh, poor Jesus. He endured that for 40 days. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine having to deal with the, the, the temptation of Satan, or the, the testing, by the way, it's the same word, tempting and, testi and testing, 
And he has got to go through all of that. And of course, we're reminded of another story where he's very beleaguered and he's very hungry and Satan tests him by turning these stones. Remember the story, right? We, we, we wrap all those things up. Mm. I want you to know something. The language that's used here is not one where Jesus is a victim. In fact, the language here is Jesus is an assault force going in and taking on the enemy on his own turf. We must understand this. Because otherwise we end up with a very passive view of Jesus and Jesus is not passive. This is tough guy Jesus. And I think that that's part of this early story that we in the 21st century miss that I think the first century probably got. Because the wilderness, that was wild. The wilderness was, we didn't know what goes on there. That's where scary stuff happens. That's where wild beasts are. And that's exactly where the Holy Spirit sent Jesus, not in the passive sense, but drove him, impelled him, sent him out as a mission, as an assault, as an affront to all the things that were scary. This is the same reason why Jesus walked on water. Because the water, underneath the water, you couldn't see under there, and in Jewish thought, that was terrifying stuff. And there Jesus is, walking on it. <laughs> Whatever. We have this sense of Jesus being this kind of passive sort of dude, and he's not at all. He's, he's very aggressive in these cases. You see, the one thing that we have to remember is that Jesus went into the wilderness to pick a fight. Think about that for a change. And all of a sudden, Jesus being tested in the wilderness has a completely different connotation to it, doesn't it? Okay? I think this is, is, is important. And there's one more element I think we need to pick up on. One last thing within this first chapter of Mark. We're still in chapter 1. First chapter of Mark that we need to, to wrestle with just a little bit. It's down in verse 21 and 22. This is after the baptism. This is after the temptation in the wilderness. This is after Jesus comes in preaching the good news. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had, what's the word? Authority. Not as the teachers of the law. Now, here's the thing. You've got two different types of ancient teachers at least within rabbinic Judaism. You have those who are teachers of the law. They're the ones who have the stamp of approval. They can teach the basics to anybody. It's one of the reasons why, um, as pastors, we go through an ordination process. In an ordination process, it's you get the stamp of approval by a group of individuals who say, yes, you can teach the basic tenets of what we believe as a church. So Pastor Dan and I both are ordained in the Church of God, Anderson, Indiana, which means we have gone before a group of our peers who have said, yep, you pass. You can do this. Praise God. Thank you very much. But within rabbinic Judaism, there's this other element of those who are often called sages who are able to give teaching slightly different. In other words, as a teacher of the law, I would say, well, this rabbi said, and this rabbi said, and this rabbi said, this is what it means. A true sage would say, no, this is what it means. They're not quoting anybody. Does that make sense? 
So when somebody has authority, they're coming in and they're saying, here's what the text means, this is what was on God's mind, and because of that, you can go out with confidence to live this out, rather than relying on the tradition of what other people said. This is an important piece of it. So, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teacher of the law. And so what I'm suggesting that we do is we take this first chapter of Mark and we kind of zoom out a little bit. Take a step back and look at the bigger picture because I think there's something that's happening here that we need to pay attention to. I think there's a pattern here. And it's a pattern, and i, I got to tell you, I'm a little skeptical of formulas. I don't think that, that, that God tends to break a lot of molds. But I do think there are certain patterns or certain ideas and things that we can watch for. The details may be different, but there may be a pattern that we can notice. And I want you to see what this potentially is. And it looks kind of like this. There is a blessing, there is testing, and then there's authority. And it, and it moves in that pattern, right? There's blessing first. There's the baptism. I mean, come on. It, don't you think it would be a blessing to hear a voice from heaven say, yeah, this is my son, I'm pleased with him? How many of you like that? I mean, that, I'd be blessed all over the place with that one. But then after the blessing, there's this time of testing. None of us like that idea. But it's the authority on the other end of testing where that blessing becomes very real. Are you understanding this? Now, here's the thing. If this is a potential pattern, then we should be able to see this elsewhere. And if you look throughout the scriptures, you begin to see this. The most obvious one in my mind is, is King David. David is a shepherd in a field. He gets drawn into a dinner where there's a prophet. They anoint him with oil as the next king of Israel. Blessing! And then he spends the next 25 years of his life on the run, trying to avoid King Saul killing him. Testing. Would you agree? Then he becomes king. That's authority. You see it? Abraham. Abraham is called out of, the, out of Ur of the Chaldees by God, who says, go to this land where I will show you, and I will bless you. Blessing. Hello. Then he spends a great deal of time being childless. And when he does have a child, he's asked, God asks him to sacrifice his child. What? And yet he's still faithful through all of that testing. And eventually he does become the father of many nations through his offspring, authority. And they still call him Father Abraham. To this day, you go into a synagogue and everybody points back to him. Are you seeing this? How about Moses? Moses gets a burning bush. I'm jealous. Then he goes through a period of time where he's wrestling back and forth with Pharaoh and all the plagues and Pharaoh's being tough and hard-hearted and and then in the midst of it, he's, he's, he's got his back with all of these people against the Red Sea and, and Pharaoh's armies are coming and what's he going to believe? That's testing. Stretch out your hand, Moses. Stretch out your staff and the water parts and they walk through on dry land. And then he goes up on the mountain and he receives from God as the prophet of God. That's authority. 
I'm having a hard time not seeing this pattern. I'm seeing this over and over and over again. There's this pattern of blessing and then testing and then ultimately there's some authority there. Hard not to see it. And frankly, if I'm honest, I've seen it in different places in my own life. Maybe not on such a grand scale, but on a smaller scale. There's some moments of testing in my own life that I don't really want to go through again. Thank you very much. Some of you have been through them with me. You don't want to go through them either. I know you don't. But there's this moment that happens when you realize there's a blessing and that this testing is only a part of this overall pattern that the authority comes after that. And so there's new things that occur, only, maybe only to start the process over again. I don't know. It depends on the individual and the circumstances, and that's completely between you and God. But there's this pattern, blessing and testing and authority. And so I, I wondered... I'm just kind of musing to myself. It's like, I'm feeling this, and I'm seeing this in, in, this in the text. My guess is that with a group this size, we've probably got some folks at different points in the process. And there might be some of you who are sitting there, uh, I'm still waiting for my blessing, thank you very much. Yeah, I understand that. You're in pretty good company. Because when it comes, maybe you'll recognize it. There's some of you who are going through testing right now, and it sucks, and you hate it. And some of you are now mad that I use the word suck in the pulpit. <laughs> but, but what I'm trying to, trying to get at here is that the testing is supposed to be testing. It's not supposed to be fun. But the blessing, what happens is the blessing turns to authority when you go through that testing. And so for those of you who are in that midst of testing, I just want to say, hang on. Hang on. And maybe some of you have been through the blessing and the testing and you are feeling that and you're happy and you're wondering, now what? Now what? And you're waiting for God to guide and direct and to see where these things are, are happening. And oh, by the way, by the way, by the way, Jesus got the authority and he still had challenges. Can we just be honest about that? He still had religious leaders who didn't like him. Oh, and yeah, he went to the cross. Yay. Good for us, those of us who are receiving that blessing from him, but he had to go through all of that. So it's not like when you get the authority, all of a sudden everything is, is fine. Jesus is not a magic wand, ever. But there is this pattern of moving from blessing into testing and finally into authority, and that authority actually means something. And so my... My thought for all of you is, in spite of the challenge, maybe the issue is you just haven't realized that you have the authority. You're not taking up that mantle for whatever reason. Maybe you're scared. Maybe you're, hey, go back to God. Remember your blessing. Remember your testing. This is for something. I think sometimes when I'm going through the testing part, it's easy for me to want to give up or get mad or emotional, or whatever it happens to be. And sometimes I think what we have to do is, as we're going through, is going, make this count, God. Make this count for something other than just, just pain. And realize that there's an authority that comes on the other side of the testing. 
and to remember your blessing. I wonder when Jesus was going through all of the stuff that he went through, how many times his brain went back to that moment when he heard the words, This is my son. I am pleased. That's got to be motivating. That's got to be that thing that got him through some of those challenges. I have to believe that he went back to his testing and said, you know what, I handled that, I can handle this. And he remembered, and he remembered, and he kept going. And so maybe that's where, where you are. I, I don't know, I don't know where you are. But there's still challenge, and so I just would invite you to say, are you in testing, or are you in the challenge that has to do with your authority, and what do you need to remember? What is it that you need to, to focus your attention on rather than just the junk you're dealing with? Remember your blessing. Remember the testing. Where's your authority? It all comes from the same spot. And so as the worship team comes up and, and we sing this last song, Pastor James and I, we're going to be in the back like we are every Sunday. And if you're in the midst of one of this, or if you're in this pattern and you don't know where you're at and you just kind of want somebody to pray with you, that's what we're here for. We're not here to tell you anything about your blessing, testing, or authority. We don't, we don't know those things, but we do know the one who gave it to you, and we would like to pray on your behalf. Does this make sense? Now, like always, it's entirely up to you. Um, we're back there. We would be privileged to pray with you. But as you're, as you're singing, as you're, as you're thinking about all of this stuff, ask God first, God, where am I in here? What are you trying to teach? What do you want me to learn? And what do you want me to learn about you? Because he is revealing himself to you through all of this. And so we pray for your epiphany.